You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. Well done. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you're here to visiting with us today. If you're watching at home online, thanks for tuning in with us. As Brett just said, we're picking back up at the book of Luke. So if you don't remember anything we covered, you probably should go read it. It's only like two chapters. It's the Christmas story, essentially. And we'll be picking up with Luke chapter three. We'll get there in just a minute. I want to start with this question and tell a quick story. Ready? So is there any area of your life that you know God wants you to turn away from? That's where the rest of this section of Luke in this message is gonna take us today. And uh, this is what the Bible calls repentance, but repentance is a little bit of a funny thing because there's this moment before you can repent where you have to know that you're wrong. And I remember at one point, my wife and I had two kids in our house. Now we have three and they were both quite little, but they were old enough to start walking. So I don't remember the exact ages, but maybe they were two and four at the time. They're, they're 18 months apart, my two oldest. And so I don't remember the details, but I do remember there's this place in Plainfield. So if you are maybe watching online, you don't know our community very well. It's an outdoor shopping area. Uh, it, the name has changed so many times. I don't even know what the name is currently today, but it used to be like shops at Perry Crossing or whatever it is, all right? Is that, maybe that's still the name. I don't know. I'm waiting for somebody to shake their head. Okay, anyway. And so what they had at the time is they had this outdoor water feature. And they had this like brick patio thing that went around it. And so when my wife was just running into one store to do whatever women do inside stores, I don't know. And uh, I had my little guy with me and she had one with her. It was divide and conquer scenario. And, um, and he was walking on the top of the bricks and he was going all the way around. And at first I'm holding his hand, but then I let go of his hand. And we're walking side by side, and he's just having fun, like going very, very quickly, and I'm doing my best to keep up with him on the outside of the bricks and dodge people as they're coming around, and he's still there, and I'm going around them, and that's part of the fun for dad, right? Ooh, can I get around them fast enough before he falls in the water? And my wife comes out of the store and sees this unfolding, and I'm thinking, as long as I keep my eye on the store, and she thinks I'm still holding his hand, we're okay. But she catches me through the window before she steps outside, before I can see her, and I'm not holding his hand. I'm like, it's okay, baby, I got it. He's not gonna fall in there, I'm right here. If he goes, I'll grab the little guy, he won't fall in. Sure enough, she goes into another store. This has happened over many weeks now, and I have successfully completed the challenge. I had no reason to doubt my abilities whatsoever, except this started with my older son, and now my younger son was doing it, and um, he was a little bit more risky than my older son. And so his, his goal was to touch the shiny coins down inside the water. But my goal hasn't changed. My goal is to keep him on the straight and curvy and keep him going round in a circle, like, right, just left turn, left turn, left turn all day long, just keep going. And sure enough, you see where the story's going. Sure enough, um, for a moment, I don't know if I got distracted or what happened, but I hear a splashing sound. And he's not playing in the water. I mean, he is, but he has now gone face first into the water and I'm grabbing him as fast as I can and yanking him out. And I mean, there was no way to get away with this anyway, but at least if I had enough time, I could have gone to a little kid's store, bought him a whole new set of clothes. I could have covered my tracks or something, but no, no, no. The moment this happens, my wife is halfway between the store and us and sees it unfold. I am caught red-handed and I yank him out and pull him out. Like I'm catching him at the moment he's hitting the water and pulling him out and he is shocked. He has a, what just happened? Look on his face. And I'm thinking, smile, laugh, something. I don't choke, don't cough, don't die. Like, don't do that. I'll be in trouble is what's going through my head. Sure enough, I had to look at my wife 
through the laser beams shooting <laughs> out of her eyes and admit, I blew it, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And that is kind of like the root of what repentance is really all about, right? Like, I blew it, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up the book of Luke and see where this idea comes from and why it's important for us today. So part of what happens, I, I can't cover all the verses, so you have to read it on your own to get some of what I say, but don't show you. The lead up to the verses I'm gonna show you is um, Luke, the guy who wrote the book, and he wrote the book of Acts. It's a two-part volume. He tells us in Luke 1 and in Acts that uh, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus is almost guaranteed to be a, a Roman governor of some sort, and so he's paying Luke to write an account of everything that we've heard about Jesus. And so he's gone around and he's done a lot of research. And his gospel has more detail than many of the other gospels, sometimes different detail. And we'll see this a little bit today. Matthew and Luke sometimes tell the exact same story, but they add different details in. And it's not because one is right and one is wrong. It's because they're writing for a different audience. Matthew almost guaranteed is writing to Jewish people. Luke is almost guaranteed writing to Gentile or non-Jewish people. So he sometimes puts details in, and we'll look at some of those today. He tells us early in Luke chapter 3 who is governor and who is in power at the time. He's anchoring these stories and real history. These aren't made up stories. You can go look up these people and find out who they really were. In fact, Sir Walter Ramsey, and I've said this, I'll keep saying this throughout the series, Sir Walter Ramsey, who was an ancient uh, history professor in England, and uh, he at one point didn't believe the scriptures at all, thought they're all concocted stories. So he decided to take the book of Acts and follow Luke's trajectory. And what he found is he went to town to town to town as Luke is a class A historian, and it actually gave him faith in Jesus Christ. So you can trust the things that are written here. Luke literally did his homework. But he tells us in verse two that John the Baptist, which is who we're gonna look at, John the Baptizer, we'll get to why he's called that, uh, he's called by God to, to give a message. And here we'll pick up Luke 3, 3. It says, he, John the Baptist, or Baptizer, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's just a summary statement about who he is. Matthew gives us a couple of interesting extra details. So let's take a look at Matthew's account. We'll pick up those details about John the baptizer. It says this, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Isn't that the next like clothing style we ought to go for? Sounds awesome. I'll get to that in a second. His food was locusts and wild honey. Mm. I mean... If you're looking for an appetizer today, there you go. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the re whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So you may have noticed the word baptize and baptized were underlined both. Before I get to that word, let me just say real quick, this was a common outfit for a prophet so that the reason Matthew's highlighting that is he's letting us know John is not just a man. He is a man called by God. He's on a mission. He's been given a word from the Lord. And the same thing, kind of the locusts and wild honey, he's out there living in the wilderness. I got to visit there last February, about a year ago. I went to Israel for the first time. I saw the place in the Jordan River where they believe this happened. This is significant. The reason that it's right here in the Jordan is this is the location where the Israelites crossed from their desert wandering into the promised land. John didn't just pick this location on accident. He went out here and picked this location because it's John's way of announcing to everybody a new promised land has arrived. 
And if you want to enter into this promised land, you're going to have to cross the Jordan again. Now let's talk about this word baptized for a minute. We, we um, I can't remember, I think we have 15 people right now in starting point. Again, it's our second starting point for the year. Um, people just keep showing up, so welcome to Kingsway. But we always get a lot of questions about Kingsway and baptism, and, and I don't have a ton of time to go deep. That's not the focus of, of today's message, but I don't want to miss a great opportunity here. So what I just did is just to help you see a little bit about where we stand and why we stand there. I took this word baptized. I looked it up in the Greek. There's an app you can go to. You can actually just Google just put in the word, uh, the passage. I hear Matthew chapter three, verse six, or whatever it is, Luke chapter three, verse three, and then just put Greek in Google. And then one of the first things to come up will be Bible Hub. And Bible Hub will show you in the Greek text what it is. And, and then you can click on whatever word you wanna look up. And here is what you'll find. Here's what it looks like. See, so see up here, the name of the website is Bible Hub. And you can just do all this on your own. Like, so I just told you, like I just taught you how to go self-feed, right? Go teach yourself, all right. So you can learn all kinds of things if you care about that. But the Greek word here is baptizma. And we learned some different things going on about the word. You may notice down here, immersion or dipping, submerging. Now, I'll just take some of these and I'll put them on a slide for you so you could see it better because I knew you wouldn't be able to see that well. So what we find is the word baptism here is actually the word baptisma. And I had to test myself. How well do I remember the Greek alphabet from Bible college? So you've got a simple, simple here. I know some of you don't care about this, but stick with me. Uh, a beta, alpha, pi, tau, yoda, sigma, mu, alpha. Nobody? Come on. And some of you are like, I recognize those letters from when I was in college. <laughs> exactly, right? So here's the interesting thing about the word baptism. In most words in the Bible, what we did is we found the English equivalent for the word and we translated the word. But there are some words that when we came to in English, because remember, the English Bibles weren't around till the last few hundred years. So when we came to those words in English, what we did is we transliterated the word. We didn't translate it. So when you translate, you take the equal word in your language and you just give it that meaning. But because the word baptism had all kinds of confused meaning by then, what we did is we transliterated, we created a word basically just out of the letters. So you can see the B and the beta and the alpha and the A and the P and the pi. And the, I'm not gonna go through them all. You get the point. And all you'd have to do is take that off there and you have the word we call baptism. And so we made up a word for a word instead of actually giving the word its meaning. If you look on that same page that I just showed you a picture of before, you can go look it up for yourself. The literal definition of the word baptisma is the result of a dipping or sinking. Throughout ancient Greek writings, you will find this word baptisma or some version of it, baptizo something, you'll find it used to say uh, the sinking of a ship. Like if a, if a ship sinks in the sea, they would say that ship was baptized. Uh, people, if they were say washing dishes and they got it all soapy or whatever and they put it down into the water and pulled it back out, they would say they baptized the dish because it's just a word. And words only have meaning in the context that they have meaning. This is not a sermon all about baptism. So I'm not trying to answer all the questions that may be going through your head. I get it. But where sprinkling came from is roughly 90 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in a early Christian writing called the Didache. Uh, people pronounce it differently. But in that writing, uh, the question came up, what if there isn't enough water to immerse somebody? What do we do? So the early Christians said, well, if there isn't enough water, there's no way you can immerse them, then you can sprinkle three times on their head. And so then that became a 
in extreme situations will do this. Then you take that over time and through a lot of doctrines and theologies and things that changed. And next thing you know, we're sprinkling people and there's this debate. And it's been raging in the church for years. So here at Kingsway, just to answer the question some of you are asking, nobody here at Kingsway is saying anybody who's sprinkled is not good enough for God. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is here at Kingsway, we're going to go back to whatever the Bible says and we're just going to practice it. And so we're going to read the text the Bible tells us to read, and we're going to do what the Bible tells us to do. And if you want to join Kingsway, you buy into that, then join us. And if you were sprinkled, hey, let's get into the waters and get immersed together. All right, that's all the time I have for that. And you have lots of other questions. So I recommend you reach out to bcadwell at kingswaychurch.org. And you're welcome, Brett. All right, moving on, because I'm running out of time. I got to keep moving. All right, now let's get back to what, what John is saying and what Luke is telling us about John. Luke chapter three, verse four. As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Luke is now gonna quote from, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 40, verses three and four. And part of that is, is because John has been given a ministry from God. And the whole idea is something is about to happen on the scene and we wanna be a part of what God is about to do. So we need to prepare our selves. Prepare the way for the Lord. But then he tells us how to prepare it. Verse five, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. This isn't super hard to navigate, figure out what Luke is talking about. But valleys represent the low places. So valleys will be raised up be filled in. Mountains are gonna be made low. Mountains could represent the high places, the haughty places, the prideful, right? They're gonna be made low. So the humble of the earth are gonna be raised up and the arrogant, the haughty, the powerful are gonna be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. So when you have a path in front of you, and it's not straight and narrow, but it's crooked, God wants to straighten that out, right? And then the rough ways will become smooth. Maybe it's hard for somebody. God wants to smooth it out. All of these, in some form or another, how exactly they're intended to play out, are pointing us to this thing called repentance. That God is going to raise up the lowly and bring down the haughty. It's been said that you can either humble yourself and God will lift you up or you can leave yourself raised up and God will bring you low. It's a whole lot better to have the other. And we are told over and over and over again to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and in due time, he will raise us up. What is this thing called repentance? Repentance is the act of changing one's mind so completely that it results in a change of actions. It's to see your world and your problems the way God sees the world and those problems. The problem most of us have is that we have a real enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's really good at whispering deceptions and lies in our ears. Did God really say is what he said to Adam and Eve? And he's been saying the same thing to us over and over and over again. If God were in your shoes, he would understand just how hard your situation is. He would make allowances for you. Did God really say that's wrong? I mean, I know this is wrong, but is that really wrong? And because we dabble 
with the convictions that we hold about who God is and what his word says, we don't bring the high places low. And we find ourselves at a difficult place. John goes on to say in verse seven of Luke, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. This does not make John popular with anybody. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What exactly is John referring to? Well, a brood of vipers, sometimes it's a den of vipers. I mean, vipers have a poisonous bite, right? Vipers are often used um, to picture those who are sons of the devil, daughters of the devil. Uh, The whole idea being that there are only two camps you can fall into in this life. You're either in God's family or you're in the family of the enemy. There's no third camp or fourth camp or fifth camp. You are only in one family or the other. And he's accusing some who are coming out to him and saying, you're brood of vipers. You're in the wrong family. Who warned you? Almost like, why are you guys here? Who exactly is he saying this to? Well, I think Luke leaves out a little detail on purpose because Luke is trying very much to tell the story in a way that lets us know that the Gentiles are gonna be included. Everybody's gonna be included. Matthew adds a detail that kind of points us that direction a little bit because in Matthew's book, again, I think Matthew's writing to the Jewish people primarily, whereas Luke is writing to everybody, but specifically to the Gentiles. Take a look at the detail that, that Matthew adds. In verse three, chapter three, verse seven, it says, when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from, coming, from the coming wrath? So that little detail is interesting, Sadducees and Pharisees, not because it doesn't apply to everybody, but because Matthew is trying to help point out these religious leaders that you think are the best of the best of the best, the ones who don't need to change anything in their life because they got it all put together. They're coming out because they're seeing John the Baptist and they know nobody goes out there and wears this uncomfortable clothes and eats locusts and honey unless there's something different about them, unless they have a calling from God. And so they're coming out and John's like, are you really here to turn away? Are you just here to play games? But it would be a message to everybody else. If these guys, the best of the best of the best need to turn away, then how much everybody else? That's why he goes on in Luke 3 again, verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And before I read the rest, and that one hit me. It's been about 15 years now that that verse just jumped off the page of the Bible. One of the things I have found, and I'm guessing you will find it too, when you read your Bible, things you think you know, you don't need to read again, right? But then God has this way of making a verse, a passage, a sentence, or something jump out in a unique way because of what you're going through. That's why God's word is living and active, the scriptures say. And that jumped out at me because what it told me is when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, this isn't a one-time repentance. Like the first time, in order to get into the waters of baptism, I've got to repent of my sin. And what I'm doing in that moment is I'm surrendering everything I know to God. But what I have found, and I've been a Christian now, I was raised in a Christian home, but I gave my life to Christ when I was 12. I had a season of wandering. I came back somewhere in my teen years, and I've been trying to live it out ever since. But God keeps revealing to me ways that I need to return to him. 
So in that initial decision at 12, when I gave my life to Christ, I repented of the sin that I knew of at the time. I had no idea what Satan was going to do to try to trip me up throughout my life. So the way that I continue to produce fruit in my life is I keep with repentance. means every time God reveals to me something in my heart that's off from his heart, I get rid of my desires and I surrender them to him. I die to myself again. I don't just assume that I've ever arrived. This is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the major leaders in the early church, he says, we all stumble at many times and in many ways. Like, I don't know any other qualifiers he could put on it. The whole idea is, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this thing, one year, 10 years, 50 years, you're not going to arrive this side of heaven and go, woo, I'm perfect. You're gonna constantly be laid bare before the Lord and you're gonna have to bring the high places low so that Jesus can raise them up again. And he goes on. John says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, so there's a, a bigger conversation to have. Perhaps throughout the series of Luke, we'll get to have it, but it's not for today. But I want to make a quick comparison. In essence, what the people in that day are saying is, we are safe because. And their because is because we're children of Abraham. If you go back to our series of Genesis, the reason we had to lay the foundation of Genesis before we could get to Luke is because so much of it's going to look backwards. But if you go back to Genesis, God made this promise to Abraham. One day you and you're, you're going to be father of many nations, and through you all nations will be blessed. And the Israelites, and many still do this day, we're safe. We're safe because of our connection. And Jesus, and John the Baptist before Jesus, is making sure everybody knows God will cut that tree down. It's not a problem for him. He'll raise up these stones. He'll raise up a dead, inanimate object to make them objects of life if you won't cry out, repent, and turn to him. This is how serious Jesus is. And I think it's easy sometimes. The longer we do this thing called faith, it's so easy to put Jesus on the back burner, to become apathetic, and not remember these are still true for us today. You can either produce fruit in keeping with repentance, or you can become a fruitless tree that he has to cut down. It's your choice. Those are the only two choices. And one puts you in the family of God, and the other puts you outside the family of God. All of this, all of this is directed at anyone who foolishly thinks that they are saved because they are good enough without turning to Jesus for salvation. See, what we say is Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So he died the death we should have died so that when he came alive on the third day, he gave us the life we couldn't attain on our own. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know how long you've been at Kingsway. If this is your first message, welcome to Kingsway. It's the perfect time because in order to accept Jesus, you have to come to the end of yourself and realize I'm not good enough on my own. I'm just not. And I need a savior. So that the crowd, hearing John, they ask the question we should be asking. Well, what do we do? <laughs> That's a great question. What do we do? How do we respond to this? John, if we believe you, what do we do about it? 
And what you're going to see is John goes on and he addresses three groups of people. And they're not the only three kinds of people. But I do find it fascinating, these three groups of people. So we're going to go through those three quickly and just see what wisdom we have from them. Ready? First one, verse 12. John answers, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. The very first thing John says is fascinating to me. He doesn't deal with immorality. He doesn't deal with, with, with uh, sexual sin. Uh, he doesn't deal with lying. What he deals with is an abundance mentality. When you have an abundance, but you think everything you have is yours, you have a sin problem that needs to be brought low. How are the lowly gonna be raised up and the, and the haughty brought low? It's gonna be through the haughty repenting and realizing God has blessed me beyond what I deserve. It's all from him. It's all for him. So therefore, I wanna partner with him in bringing resources and, and help to those who are lowly. That's how these two things come together. Make sense? And the reason is generosity is a key marker of repentance. If you do not find yourself to be a generous person, I would just suggest to you, not saying you're not saved, not saying that. That's always in Jesus' hands. I'm only saying, have you really wrestled with the word of God? I mean, you are gonna be deeply offended throughout the book of Luke if you think generosity for somebody else somewhere else. And if you look at your lifestyle, you look at your bills and you say to yourself, I can't be generous. The answer is because you've spent it all on yourself. And God desires to see that change. And he's unbelievably gracious over time to move you towards that, to give you thoughts and ideas and plans and strategies about how you do that. But generosity is a key marker of repentance. I buy into who you are, God. I get what you want for this world. So now how do I align my life, my heart, my spending, my habits to align with yours? So I just thought uh, this would be a perfect time to pause the message for a minute and do a little commercial, right? So last week, as you already know, we did something called Relentless Pursuit, and it was awesome. And I can't wait to share the total number committed with you next week. Next week, I'll share that number because next week is a really important Sunday. It's called First Gifts Sunday. And what First Gifts Sunday is on 226 is uh, everybody, we're gonna get this work started from whatever was committed. And uh, if you didn't commit, it's not too late. It's never too late. We still got these tables up. You can do that. In fact, we grew significantly from Sunday to today. A lot of people forgot, went home, or still, so some of you maybe still having conversations. Great, it's not too late. But next week is First Gifts. And First Gifts is we're all gonna bring whatever we can to get the work started. We got a lot of this work we want to kick off starting even this summer. We got to get significant dollars in the bank so that we can start the work. So some of you are like, yeah, I'm going to give this much a year for the next three years, but you could write the check today. Why don't you do that next Sunday on 226? Uh, my wife and I are already figuring out, okay, we can't give the full amount we committed, but we've got a chunk of it that we can give by next Sunday. So we're going to bring that in and give it next Sunday, whatever it is that we could do today. So pray about that because we're going to have a worship service next Sunday. It's going to be awesome. It's not about relentless pursuit. We're back in the book of Luke, chapter four, Jesus' baptism, but it's going to be great. There's going to be a moment in the service where we're just celebrating together this work, and then we'll share that number with you also. So next Sunday, I'll share the number with you, but as Brett said, we had 160 giving units. So if you take families in there, whether it's three or four or five people in a family, 160 total people have already committed, and so you can multiply that and figure out what is that, right? Is that 400 people, 500 people, 600 people? I don't know exactly, but a bunch of people have already committed. Thank you, God, for your commitment. Can we just stop and give God the glory for that already stirring in our hearts? Yeah, that's super exciting. All right, now for time's sake, I gotta keep moving because there's a couple other things I wanna say and uh, I wanna do something special as we end the service. So let's come back to the book of Luke, chapter three again, verse 12. The next group of people come up to John, like, what do we do? 
Even tax collectors came to be baptized. I mean, even tax collectors. I mean, you think about it for a second, like those people need it. All right, teacher, if you work for the IRS, please audit someone else. I was joking. Okay, teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. This is really important. You'll see this throughout the book of Luke. We'll go deeper on this when we get to like a guy named Zacchaeus. But what you'll see throughout the book of Luke is um, tax collectors, they are Jews hired by Romans to collect the taxes. So they're already hated because it's like you're a traitor against us. But not only that, but they were allowed to add their own fees over and above what Rome had said they should require. And many of them, being arrogant, charged more than they needed to to make their own pockets bigger. And they were hated and despised. You see this in the chosen season three. If you haven't watched that, go watch that. But what's happening here is these people are convicted about how they're cheating and stealing and robbing others. And what I want you to take away from that is tax collectors are often in Jesus' day considered the worst of the worst. And what that means is there is hope even for the worst of us. Because John didn't look at the worst of them and say, you're too evil, get out of here. Instead, he said, go be different. Verse 14 Then some soldiers came to him. And what do we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. I find it fascinating. These soldiers probably, it doesn't say, but probably were looking at Roman soldiers. Not an accident that Luke points them out since he's writing to the Gentiles and saying, this gospel's for everybody. It's not just for the Jews. But what I find fascinating is the things that he says to them. Don't extort. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It's all stuff related to their jobs. See, we tend to think of repentance as like a very small section of people in our society. They need to get it together. But what John the Baptist is saying is, you really want to have God's heart? Do good work. Because doing good, fair, and honest work is important to God. Think about that. When you go to your workplace tomorrow, are you working hard when your boss is paying you to work hard? Are you doing good, fair, honest work? Because that's what God longs for. I'm going I'm to have to do a one-two skip a few because of time. So I'm going to jump to a question that I want to ask you and then answer it in the book of Ephesians. So I'm triggering our slide people up there. What do we do with all of this? Well, remember, I asked you this question at the outset, like, Is there anything that God has been placing on your heart that you need to turn away from? Is there anything in your heart that you need to repent of, that you need to agree with God as evil and then start living differently? In the book of Ephesians, chapter five, verse eight, Paul writes this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, truth, Find out, find out what pleases the Lord. Like, you may not know what pleases God. You might just have a general conviction about something. Well, start doing some homework. Start reading your Bible. Meet with a pastor or somebody on staff. Find a spiritual brother or sister in the Lord and say, I'm not sure if this is acceptable to God, but I feel like God told me I should stop doing this. And then start changing In fact, the very next verse, verse 11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Remember John the Baptist told us, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
well, how do I produce fruit? I stop doing fruitless things. I start doing fruitful things. What does it mean to expose them? Well, in short, I'll give you three quick things, and they're all S's. Find someone safe. Everybody doesn't have to know everything, but you need a group of people. I got three pastors in my life right now. We text, we call, we retreat twice a year, we talk every single month, but we're constantly sharing the loads and the burdens of life and ministry. And if I'm tempted by anything, it's the first group that I reach out to say, guys, I need you to pray for me. Here's what I'm feeling and experiencing today. And they're a safe place. They won't judge me, but they won't let me get away with anything either. So you need people who are safe, but you also need people who are spiritual. These men are all godly men who love the Lord. I know that they will speak God's word in my life. I know that they will call me out. I can't go to somebody who doesn't love Jesus and ask for Jesus' advice. I need people who have the mind of Christ who could speak truth into my life, and so do you. That's why I'm so excited about the men's retreat, and over 112 men, I think, are signed up already, and how many more might go? You're gonna hopefully rub shoulders with some other men who have the mind of Christ and wanna see you become more like Jesus. And the last one, the last one, is anybody you've sinned against. Is there anybody you've sinned against? And you know, God's putting it on your mind right now. You know what you did is evil or wrong. What if you didn't have to hide anymore? What if you could expose these things and trust that God is going to take care of it? So what we want to do right now is give you a a safe place to process that with the Lord. We're going to send you into communion. Chelsea and her dad, isn't it great that we get to have her dad with us today? Chelsea and her dad are going to sing a song over us. And that song is just intended to be words for us, back to God the Father. So as you take communion today, I want you to sit with that bread and that juice and remember this represents the grace of God in your life. And I want you to ask God this question, God, is there anything in me that you want me to turn away from and give to you? And as God answers that question, then what we're going to do at the end of that song is we're going to sing an old hymn, a new way, called Take My Life. And we're just going to sing it back to the Lord and give to God again our hearts, our bodies, our minds. Let me say a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, speak to us now. God, bring the high things low. Humble us, Father, and raise us up again in Jesus' name.